You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. And so listen, we're coming like a week until Christmas, right? And this isn't a Christmas sermon. You know, like I think um, um, when we first were getting started with the Advent sermon series, like we were a week before we were going to get started, and I was hanging out at Pastor Brett's house, and I go, why didn't I just open Luke and just preach the Christmas story? You know, like, why did I give myself so much work for Christmas, you know, um, uh, to be studying uh, uh, prophecies from Isaiah? And I, I just find that the Lord has been super faithful through this uh, to just show us some different things about himself. And uh, this morning, he's going to show us something that I think is timely uh, for Christmas in that uh, we are going to find that this time of year that you, and I'm having a lot of conversations with you guys right now around dinner tables and stuff, and one of the uh, comments that I'm hearing the most often right now is that with Christmas being so near, that for a lot of us, it doesn't feel like it. It's some variation of that sentence I'm hearing a lot right now. It doesn't feel like Christmas is just a week away. That time is marching forward and the day is drawing nearer, but I just don't feel like it's here, my Christmas spirit is low this year and other comments like it, right? And I'm hoping that at least in part that one of the functions of this morning's message will be to lift our eyes off of what we would call Christmas spirit and what we would say feels like Christmas and let whatever is be what feels like Christmas, to learn to reorient the way we think that there's somehow an appropriate way for us to feel in light of reality because of the date on the calendar rather than the truth about who God is everlasting. He's going to teach us some things about him this morning, about his promises and their fulfillment, and all of that's incredible, but they're not pinned to a certain date on the calendar. And I want you guys to feel like if you just don't feel like putting up lights, if you're just not down for the gift giving and all that this year, that maybe your life is being stripped and simplified this morning that you would behold the actual Christ of Christmas uh, in, in, a coming, in the coming week. Let's look at why. We have an invitation here in, in chapter 55, verse 1. It goes like this. Our passage opens with, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. And so our passage opens this morning with this invitation from the Lord. It's, it's incredibly invitational. It, start, it opens with, come, 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 like an usher ushering in, beckoning to himself. Come, this invitation to the church this morning. Why do I say the church? Because he invites who? Everyone who thirsts. Everyone who thirsts. And if you guys will go back with me, if you were there two weeks ago when we, when we kind of walked through this prophecy about the bruised reed, do you remember? We talked about the bruised reed being the one who God has bruised in order to bring him to himself, the one who God made aware of his own sin in order that he would repent and turn to him and cling to Jesus for hope. This was who we said was the one who God will not crush, the one who God calls his very own, the one who is bruised by his sin. Well, here we meet the bruised reed again. We meet the one who thirsts. We see an invitation to come 
but it's not an invitation for everyone. It's an invitation for everyone who thirsts. Everyone who thirsts. And you see, we don't produce thirst in this way. And that if, if you've been with Mercy's Door over the last year, we've been walking left to right through the Gospel account of John leading up to our break for Advent. And over and over again, we saw we were encountered with this doctrine right from the lips of Jesus where he would say things like, no one comes to the Father except through me. And that no one comes to me unless drawn by the Father. But everyone who the Father gives to me will come to me. And if the Father gives someone to me, I will never let go of him, right? And we, we see all of these different uh, passages in the Gospel of John where Jesus talks about all of us being dead in our sin, right? That we were dead in the trespasses in which we once walked. That all of us have transgressed the glory of God. That we don't reach out to him, that he reaches out to us. And so if we look back to two weeks ago where we said that the bruised reed is the one who God himself has bruised in order to make him aware, to give him a contrite heart that he would receive him back, we likewise must conclude that if you thirst in a way that it would cause you to respond to this call of God to come, that it is God who has placed this thirst within you. And this is important because we see a parallel to it in, in, in um, the Beatitudes, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Jesus says, Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Right? So when we see a, with a parallel with a passage like this, to come, everyone who thirsts, and come to the waters, he who has no money, to come buy and eat, to come buy wine and milk without money and price, to be satisfied, we see great parallel to what Jesus is saying. We see that this passage is about those who will come to Jesus, the very fountain of living water, to quench their thirst for righteousness. And so what I want you guys to hear this morning is that the Christmas message is about people coming to a Jesus who they would never have come to him unless he first called, and yet he calls. He says, come, come to me. Not a specific date of the year, but right now and again and again, come to me, that thirst within you for righteousness and I'm not talking about righteousness like self-righteousness. We talked about that two weeks ago. And I'm not talking about righteousness for them over there, that you just want justice to pour down on them over there, but that you make a real accounting of yourself. And you say, before you, God, I am undone. I need righteousness, the righteousness of another. And he says, I can do that. In fact, the, the fact that you're calling on me for it at all is showing you that I am doing it. And so there's this invitation to come, those who thirst, come, church, come, ransomed remnant, come, my chosen people, to the waters, the fountain of living water. He who has no money, come, buy and eat, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And so here we see a parallel to Jesus who calls himself the bread of life, the very bread of life, the fountain of living water and the bread of life. There's this invitation to come, those who thirst and who hunger, to meet their satisfaction in the person of Jesus Christ. But what I don't want us to miss this morning is that he says here, without money and without price. Without money and without price. You see, church, the only way that we approach the, living, the fountain of living water, the only way that we approach the bread of life to, 
take deep into our soul, drink deeply his righteousness is with empty hands. It's without money. It's with no purchasing power. In what you go to Christ to receive, you receive freely or not at all. You cannot earn it from him. You cannot pay for it. We know this, but do we know this? In your conversations with God about righteousness, how often does it sound like a negotiation where you're kind of thinking about God like he's a cop who's riding behind you on the road and you're just sure he's going to turn his lights on at any moment and you're like, listen, I know you caught me speeding back there, but now that you're behind me, I'm going to, I'm going to follow the speed limit and hope that you'll just kind of forgive me. I'm negotiating with God saying, if you'll turn a blind eye to what I did before, I'll do it right from now on. But this is what I often see in the church. I see it in other people who understand that grace has been poured on their sin and that they don't need to earn it or keep it through their righteous deeds, but instead it's like they're trying to justify their adoption. As if God came into an orphanage and saw you, sized you up, said he needs work, but I can work with that, adopts you, and then every day it's on you to prove to him that he made a good choice picking you. It's ridiculous. You were adopted without merit. You did not get yourself adopted, and you did not keep yourself adopted. You come to him without price, without money, and you drink deeply and eat to your heart's delight. That great hymn, Rock of Ages, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. You come to him as a beggar, only to find that he delights in receiving beggars. And so he moves from, come without money, without price. He says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, and come to me hear that your soul may live. You know, there's a thousand applications that I could run with here, and half of them would be weak, but all of them would be useful. When God speaks down from the heavens and asks his people, remember, he's inviting his church here, those who thirst for righteousness, and he calls them in, and he asks them a question. He asks you a question. Why do you spend your money on that which does not satisfy, on that, on that which is not bread. And why are you laboring for that which does not satisfy? Right on the heels of inviting you to come freely and drink deeply and receive to your heart's delight, he then asks you about how you spend your hands, how you use your hands, what you busy yourself with. And he's calling to mind for us something that's exceedingly important in our day, and it was then too. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I would add, where your labor is, there your heart is also. I know what you believe by looking at what you do. You know what I believe by observing what I do. Where you labor communicates what you worship or what you believe will satisfy you. And there's a lot of weary souls in the room this morning. 
we've been hanging out as I talk about this, this Advent season, this coming of Christmas. I'm looking at a lot of just tired faces right now. There's fatigue. And it's been a long year of laboring, but for what? Spending, but for what? That which is not bread and that which does not satisfy. You see, there's a scarcity mindset in the church that we've been exploring over the last several weeks that drives us to certain activities. And you're going to work. Some of you are more prone to slothfulness and some of you are more prone to overwork. Some of you are maybe just really faithful, diligent workers. But all of us, diagnostically, are laboring often for the wrong things. And so on the one hand, I want to say to you, to the workaholic, peace. To the sloth, labor. To the one who's diligent, labor for the right things. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's too many applications for me to go head by head here for each of you guys, but I want you guys to know you are working. It's just what are you working for? Like some of you are so tired and you're never satisfied. You're ragged, but you're never full. You spend it all, but you never have enough. Our God, our King, who invites us to come with no money, to come freely and to receive to our heart's delight, then wants us to make a reckoning. And what are you doing? If this is free and this is better, why are you over here toiling and spending and running, running yourself ragged? Why? Well, it's because it's an indicator of a lack of belief. It's like we walk right past the fountain of the living water to spend money on mud water that we can drink up. Because we either believe that that's out of bounds, that I, I, can't, that I don't deserve that, that I can't, and you don't. I can't come to that, 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 that I can't afford that. You can't. But it's free. Still others of us, it's not that we walk past it to go and busy ourselves with these other things, but that we, in our minds, tell ourselves that there are these other things that stand between us and the fountain of living water, and I have to labor my way through them in order to get to the fountain. So whether it's by ignorance or self-righteousness, I just tell you that Jesus, that God here calls you to lay it down and just to stop to sit, to be, to receive, not to earn. Before I became a full-time pastor here at Mercy's Door, I worked for a large healthcare company in um, clinic operations. I had several pediatric health clinics that I managed, and um, I was not entirely popular. Um, and I, um, not for lack of trying, and, uh, but one of the reasons was uh, just how loud sometimes Christianity worked its way into the workplace for me, in that uh, I, I would sometimes have conversations with my employees where they would say things like, I know that you're like a pastor on the side, but you got to put that away when you're here. I had a reputation for being like soft on crime, you know, so it comes down to like uh, uh, too soft on people when uh, they were 
um, unreliable or things like that. And so uh, I, my team often wanted me uh, to be harder on the employees that they didn't like. And, uh, but I remember one time uh, I was at work and one of my employees uh, had a day and um, was just going off out on the clinic floor and uh, yelling and shouting and stormed off, like quit on the spot. And I called her while she was driving. I said, take the day, I got you covered, come see me in the morning. And when she came in, she shared with me that her power had been turned off, that she's a single mom, that uh, she, she didn't make enough here for the, to, it to be worth it. If I'm going to be struggling so much, no matter what I do, then what's the point? Uh, you know, it was during COVID, so everything was bonkers as it was in healthcare. You know, stresses were never higher. And so I gave her a raise, uh, put her on a track to get a promotion, and put her through a program that my company offered to pay her utility bill, and they picked, took care of the utility bill for her. And it was received horribly that I would reward bad behavior. Is what it, and I was notorious for rewarding bad behavior. Similarly, I had an employee who was always late to work by like the same quantity of time every single morning. And so she had coworkers coming and tattling on her to me and saying like, she's always late, she's always late, she's always late. And so I called her in, I find out, I live in a terrible school district, I don't have a car, I take a bus to take my child to a private school, I can't afford a car because I spend all my money on this private school, and then I gotta take the bus from the opposite direction to get to work, and I can't control the bus schedule, and it's, I gotta walk the last half mile to the office from the bus stop. And so I was like, what if I changed your start time? Then you wouldn't be late, you know? And so now you start when you can get here, and that's your start time now, and because we could cover it, right? And so then on rainy days and snowy days, I try to time my drive into work to pass her bus stop so I could take her that last half mile to the office. Very unpopular. Because I was rewarding bad behavior. Jesus rewards bad behavior. Not because you did something wrong does he reward you. Don't hear that wrong. But you bring nothing but bad behavior and receive his reward. You bring nothing to earn what he's done and you just receive his compassion. On what basis? On what he's done for you. He doesn't say, fix your behavior and then I'll take compassion on you. He says, he does call you to repent. He does, I don't want you to hear like, keep on sinning. That'll be another sermon. Don't keep on sinning. But he doesn't say, once you've met a certain standard of righteousness, then you can come to me. He says, repent, forsake it all, die to yourself. It costs you it all. Not incremental improvement. But then we look up in the Christian life. I'm going to get some emails about what I just said, but there's, there's a reality in the Christian life that we don't like to talk about, which is that you're still sinning. Like, in gospel community, when we get across the table from one another, I find out that it turns out that you still war against sin. That you repented in 2003 and made a profession of faith, and here, 20 years later, some of the same sins that clung so tightly then are clinging to you now. And yet you belong to Christ. I bring this up to say that 
Some of you guys are waiting to come to Christ at all until you reach a certain standard of righteousness, and that's just garbage. You come to him empty-handed, and you just say, I'm not enough, but you are. But because I'm preaching to ransomed saints mostly this morning, the other behavior to that that I often see is what we talked about, that you came to him once, and now you're just like slaving yourself in order to remain worthy. Like he made you worthy, like gave you a clean slate, and now you've got to keep the slate clean. As if the blood of Christ is not perpetually applied to secure his people forever, he will make you righteous. His spirit will enable your good deeds. And in eternity, when you stand before him, he will perfectly cleanse you from all of your sin and unrighteousness and you will shed your sin, and you will stand before him glorified. But you just can't do that on your own. I bring this up, guys, because I, there's a doctrine that we tend to not believe, where we stop at, like, cleaning the whiteboard. I preach it often at Mercy's Door because in conversations, I just, it's clear we don't believe it. Jesus Christ did not apply blood to your life to give you a clean slate so that you can have a do-over. Can you hear me say it again? Jesus Christ did not apply his blood to you to clean the slate so that you can have a do-over. Jesus lived the perfect life on your behalf, and after eliminating the record of your sin, then credits the record of his perfect righteousness to your account. Some of us are acting like Jesus' job was to remove our sin and our job was to replace it with righteousness. Jesus does both. He removes your sin and he credits righteousness to your account. And this is why you then have freedom to follow him into good works because you are now walking in what is already true of you on account of Jesus. It's the difference between slavery and serving the family. I've gone on about that long enough, I think. Incline your ear and come to me. No, let's go back. He says, Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. It makes me think about when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness and he retorts our enemy and he says that man does not live on bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Here God calls his words rich food. He says, listen to me as I speak and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. And we, of course, know that Jesus is the word become flesh. That to delight yourself in the word of God, the words of God, is to delight yourself in Christ himself. To eat that which is good and to delight ourselves in what is rich. He says to incline our ears and to come to him to hear that our souls may live. In John 5, 24, Jesus said, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. To receive the words of God, the ones that bruise the reed, to hear from God in such a way that his call to come draws you, his 
call to repent pierces your soul? This is to be drawn to Jesus. To come to him that your soul may live. Jesus said, whoever hears my word, these are his words, whoever believes him who sent me, God the Father has eternal life. And then we hear it in the opposite in verse 4 and 5. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. That's stuff about David and Jesus, and I'm going to keep going. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon Hear this, church, verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Remember when Jesus said in John 12, while the light is with you, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. You know, I've been preaching this with kind of this sober and kind of harrowing tone over the last several weeks, but mercy's door, not our mercy's door, but but the door of mercy, the invitation for sinners to be ransomed, will not be open forever. It won't. A day will come, and not far, where Christ will return and say enough and bring an end to all sin and suffering on the face of the earth. That day is coming. So this invitation is an urgent invitation. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him to our God for he will abundantly pardon. If you are in this room this morning and you do not belong to Jesus Christ, if he says come and you say where, if he says come to me and you say who, I tell you that you are missing out on the only pathway to your salvation, that you stand opposed to your holy God, but his door remains open, and that door is Jesus Christ. And if we seek him and call upon him while in these days while he is near, his spirit is in this room now. You are surrounded by people who know him. This is your hour to repent of your sin, to say, I cannot buy your favor. I cannot earn your favor. I am not enough on my own, but your son is enough. And to cling to him and him alone for your righteousness, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man, his thoughts return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Listen, if I am speaking to you this morning, Paul, who wrote that in 1 Timothy, was in the middle of persecuting, killing, jailing, st overseeing stonings of God's people, of Christians, when God 
intervened and Jesus plucked him up and said, you'll not only be mine, but you're going to write like the whole New Testament and spread the gospel to like the whole world. When Paul says, of whom I am the foremost regarding sinners, he meant it. He'd never met me. Maybe I'm the foremost. Maybe you're the foremost. But this is that part that I thought that we tend to miss in our table gatherings when I talk to you guys. Like, Paul was writing scripture when he confessed that he's the chief of sinners. How good do you think you're going to get? You're going to need Christ the whole way home. His covering is going to need to be sufficient the whole way home. You're not going to graduate to a point where you don't need him. But to need him and have nothing to offer in return is the most blessed place to be in because then we drink deeply and fully of his righteousness. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, if you're going to keep on sinning, you're going to have to keep confessing. You're going to have to keep repenting. You're going to have to keep returning to him that he would cleanse us of our unrighteousness. Don't get me wrong, I don't think I'm confusing you, so I won't make this a main point. But you have to stay needy. You're meant to stay needy. He's the vine, you're the branches. All of your strength is drawn from him. All of your righteousness is drawn from him. All of your good deeds are credited to him. And even if you took the credit for all of them, they wouldn't be enough on their own. He credits his good deeds to you. Continuing on, for my thoughts are not your thoughts and neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Everybody quotes this one to me, like my thoughts, his ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts. And that's really like, it's very true, but we say it like in a nebulous way, like he's so mysterious and he is. But we leave four out when we quote it, don't we? For my thoughts are not your thoughts. He's connecting this claim about himself to what he has just said. That when he calls the wicked and the unrighteous to return to him in order that he could have compassion on them, in order that he could abundantly pardon them, in this way, his ways are not like us. In this way, his thoughts are not like ours. So when, like I was talking about at work, we have this, in, what we were seeing was the human instinct to want justice. This person did wrong, just punish them. And God's like, let the one who has done wrong forsake his way and return to me in order that I can show him compassion, in order that I can pardon him. In this way, my ways are not like your ways. My thoughts are not like your thoughts. He who has been forgiven much will forgive much, won't he? Once we behold his ways and how unlike us they are, like how many grudges are you holding right now? How many communions have you skipped over the last several weeks? 
when I hold out to you guys, hey guys, like before you take this, really know that don't, like, don't take this as you're harboring bitterness and resentment towards your brother. Forgive him first and then take communion. How many of you have to put down the cup? Because your ways are not like his ways because your thoughts are not like his thoughts. But when we behold him, we become like him. And we read verse 9, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. In other words, his way is better. And for as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. It's impossible, of course, I, you know, we picked these to prove to you guys that he was talking about Jesus. His word, whether you want to interpret this as the promises he's making here or the fulfillment of those promises being the word, Jesus, who he sent to go literally do this stuff, will not return void. Just as he pours out rain on the face of the earth and the ground drinks it up to its delight and sprouts forth vegetation, so his word will take root in his church. It will bring dead men to life. It will ransom the church of God. You are evidence that this is true if you belong to him. But this is also meant to be confidence in you as you go and spread that word. His word has power. The gospel is the power of salvation for those who believe. And so when you go and share this word with others, you have the assurance that the word of God does not return to him void, but it does accomplish all which he purposes, and it will succeed in things for which he sends it. You know, I know that there's like different perspectives on the nature of salvation in this church. How exactly, what's the, what are the mechanics of it? Some of us think it's more of a mystery. Some of us don't. What I know, though, is that every time a person is saved, that it's the Holy Spirit alone who did that. No matter like, what you believe, everyone always agrees on that. Like, oh, we don't save people. We just spread the gospel. Holy Spirit has to do the work, right? Like, we all believe this, right? And so let's find common ground there and say, like, why would you not spread the gospel if the Holy Spirit uses it to effectually save all those who he wills to save? You know, Paul believed this more than any of us. You know, he so believed that people couldn't be saved unless God opened their ears, opened their hearts, like made them not deaf to his word, and, and he, like very monergistic or God-centered view of how salvation works, and he went and like stormed the nations with the gospel. It caused him to be more confident in spreading the gospel because he knew that God can and does and will. but we're laboring for that which does not satisfy. I don't want you to hear this as condemnation. I want you to hear it as a rally cry. I don't want you to go home and hang your heads. I don't spread the gospel enough. That doesn't do anything. 
What I want is for us to be like, this thing saved my life. This God saved my life. And it was free. And everyone needs it. And I have it. And I have it so much so that I can give it away. My cup overfloweth. And I want you to spread the gospel. I want you to tell your neighbors. I want you to tell your coworkers. But if you're laboring for that which does not satisfy, for that which is not bread, what you will ultimately do is busy yourself with those things which promise to give you comfort. And so you're not drinking deeply from Jesus. You're drinking deeply from your works. From, I want approval of man. I want more money. I want that promotion. I, I want whatever. I want to be liked. I want to be pretty. Whatever. And there's little time left to labor for that which satisfies. But if you are drinking deeply from that which fully satisfies for free, you've got all the time in the world to labor for those things. Not in order that you'd receive it, but in order that others would. Because you don't need it. And that's why I didn't mind being so unpopular. I kind of always felt like I was like going to get fired. I think a lot of men feel that way. You know, you talk to them, it's like just like a, a, going to work every day with just, you know, some sense that maybe today <laughs> is the day they find out I don't know what I'm doing. Um, you know, I'm just kidding. But just, actually, I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, but these last six months that I've been full-time at Mercy's Door, I, and they've not been without difficulty. It's been hard. It has also been like some of the easiest six months of my life. Because my job, now it's like hard for me to like pretend that my job is anything other than to receive deeply from God and then give it away to other people. Like that's like my job description. It was always my job description according to God. But you could tell yourself in other settings that your job description is something else. But your job everywhere you go is to receive deeply from the Lord and to give it away to other people. And so on my best weeks in the, in the corporate healthcare workspace, that was my job to go there and execute my tasks faithfully, but to receive deeply from God and to give that away to other people. And so when you're not liked, when you're not compensated, commensurate with your experience, when you are passed over for that promotion, right, with like all of that, it's okay because you don't need those things. You receive fully from your God. And so in this space, you can reject me, you can laugh at me, you can overlook me, you can whatever. I don't need those things from you, but you do need what I have. What we're talking about is a freedom to release the world from needing to make you significant. So many of us need the world to make us significant because we're not drinking deeply from the well of living water. And so we're not laboring for the world. We're laboring to get from the world and finding over and again that it does not satisfy but you are still here that you would spread his word to them, not that they would satisfy you. For you will go out with joy, verse 12, and be led forth in peace, and the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This is your Christmas sentence. You're going to go out in joy, and you're going to be led forth in peace, and nature's going to sing with you. Let heaven and nature sing. 
And you see a reversal of the curse in the garden here in verse 13, that the thorns will turn to cypress, that the briar will turn to myrtle, that the cursed ground will be made new. We're talking about the new heavens and the new earth here. This is a big problem. We're still waiting on this one. And the everlasting sign will be given that shall not be cut off. I want to read to you guys really quick from uh, Romans chapter 8. I'm having one of those mornings where I have like no sense for how long I've been up here. And so I'm just going to keep going. Romans 8, chapter 18, verse 3. You just listen. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, God, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. I want to go through that a little bit more slowly, okay? Paul is saying that all of creation, the mountains, the hills, the thorns, and the thistles, all of creation is literally groaning with eager longing for the revealing of who? Of you. The whole earth, God's creation, is groaning in pain, waiting for God to reveal you. For that day when Christ returns and you take up your glorified body, the assurance that was given to all creation, which was subjected to futility for your sake. The, the ground was cursed for your sake on account of you. And now it's waiting for you to be glorified for its sake. When Christ fixes you, he fixes everything because you broke everything. Let's keep going. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience." There is a, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep going here, actually, because this will be a good point. Um, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I would love to preach that. That's another week. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he has justified, he also glorified. We know that for those who love God, that all things work together for good. Amen? For those who are called according to his purpose. And this passage this morning is the call. It's the come. It's the beckoning. It is the call. But the ones who receive it are the ones who had their ears open to receive it by God. This is how you can know 
that his word will not return void. Because if your ears won't receive it, he'll make them receive it. He speaks the word and he opens the ear of the deaf in order that they can receive the word, in order that they would become his, in order that those he predestined, he calls, come to me, they come. And those who he calls, he justifies. Means that if you're his, you stand before him perfect. And those whom he justified, he glorified. This is the part you're waiting for. And this is the part we're going to talk about on Christmas Day. Your glorification. See, church, this is the tension of the already and the not yet, and this is the tension of Christmas. We look out at the world and we're like, I thought it was supposed to be glory. But things are still broken. And I need you guys to hear that things are still broken, which means there's still labor to do for the kingdom in the assurance that your glorification is promised. You're getting a new body, you're getting a new earth, you're getting a new heaven, you're getting a new everything. You're good. So why are you laboring for that which you already have more abundantly? If you're good, bring this message of hope to those who are not good. That's the big takeaway for this morning. If you thirst and hunger for righteousness, church, you are the bruised reed. Rejoice. If you labor and spend for your righteousness, you will never be satisfied. Repent and turn to the bread of life. Jesus is the word become flesh, and he will not fail to gather his church. So you might as well go and spread his message. And the whole world is going to sing when you are revealed. Let's pray.